Okay. Um, so, we'll review a little bit before we get started because that's a good thing to do. What does the world of Narnia represent as a um, an allegory? Yes, that's good. But I mean, any time that they are taken out of this world and into the other, what does that represent? You might not have been here when we talked about that. So that represents the spiritual world. Because when whenever they are gone in Narnia and they get back home, how much time has passed? None, right? It's like they were never gone. And maybe it was a second, but they can't really measure that, right? So, and it's, but what happens to them while they are in Narnia? Well, what happened, I, I mean in general, to any person who goes to Narnia. Uh, they learn something that will help them in the situation that they're in. Okay. So they learn stuff while they are there. What else happens to them? They grow. A they grow, that's good. Are they, are they the same? Yes, right. So now for us, what happens when you are in the spirit um, interacting with God's spirit? Okay, how, how might we see that? How might others see it? That's probably even a better way to ask. You're becoming, God has an idea for you of how, not an idea, but a plan for you of how you are going to be perfect one day. And the more that you allow him to work on you and change you, the more you are in line with his idea for you. And um, C.S. Lewis, not just in Narnia, does he have this concept, but he writes about this in his Christian writings that, you are becoming the a truer you 
like a more real you than you are when you're in sin. It's like you're a false version. You're not the real one. So that's what happens when they go to Narnia as they grow and they become better people. We see that with Eustace, like you were called there. So um, that leads me to, so how do Jill and Eustace actually get into Narnia? How does that happen? Okay, and before that happens, though, what do they do? Because Eustace is telling her about how he changed. They, they hide in a garden somewhere, mm-hmm. and they, Eustace tells her about Narnia and Aslan, and they start uh, asking Aslan to help them. Yes, they, they ju- all they do is they just say Aslan over and over, right? Um, and so it's about calling on his name, just like we are told to call on Jesus' name when we need something. And now Jill has done that, called on Aslan's name. And then when she gets there to Narnia... What is her first response when she sees Aslan, when she meets him? She's really scared that he might do. Okay, yes. And then he, he offers her water, and what is her reaction? She thinks that if she bends down to drink it, then he'll kill her later. Okay. But does... Obviously, we know, especially since we know other stories about Narnia, that he's not going to, right? Um, and what, because she asks him to do stuff like she says, well, could you turn around and not watch me or could you go away? Will you eat? Will you promise not to hurt me or do anything to me? What is it that she wants? She doesn't want... She doesn't want uh, God around when she is being saved. She wants to be saved without God. Yes, good. It jumped right to it. So she wants the water without the person who's offering it, right? And we see this is the same thing. We talked about this that in our own lives that... Often people want what a church has to offer or they ha- or the next step would be then they want what God has to offer without allowing him and surrendering to who he is and who he what he has planned for them. Um, Eustace, so this is going back now. Eustace has a similar interaction in this sense. When he first meets Aslan. And remember, if you remember that story in the Dawn Treader, that he also does not know who Aslan is the first time he meets him. He's actually probably may even know less about him than Jill does. Um, 
So, do you remember what his first meeting with Aslan is? Was it when he was a dragon? Yes. Yes. So I want to read this because it, it's a good parallel because Jill and Eustace spend a lot of time together. And I think it's on purpose that C.S. Lewis puts them together because they have similar experiences. So this is from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He has been a, turned into a dragon because he was um, greedy. greedy, Yep, envious of this gold uh, and jewels. And that never really explains why he turned into a dragon exactly. It's kind of less mysterious. But he's been a dragon for uh, weeks and weeks. And now he's even afraid that he's going to be left behind when everyone else leaves on the ship for the next island. So he has gone um, back to where he was first turned a dragon. And he's there um, by some water. Um... This is him talking about telling everybody what happened to him. I was just about to say that I couldn't undress. Oh, sorry. Uh, I should add that the lion or Aslan has just told him to undress. And now remember as a dragon, he can't speak. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on. When suddenly I thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started to peel off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it there lying beside me, looking rather nasty, it was the most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. And I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again and the underskin peeled off beautifully and I stepped out and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins must I have to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the other two two others and stepped out of it. But just as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You'll, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. 
you know, if you've ever been picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but it's fun to see it coming off anyway. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peel switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I don't like that that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me in the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started to swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. It turned, I had turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I turned you, told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle and they're pretty moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. So, what about Eustace's interaction with Aslan is similar to Jill's? Yeah, right. Okay. Yes. Um, what else is similar? Because we look at Jill, and Jill, she wants the water without Aslan. She doesn't want any danger that might come along with it. Or, go ahead. Okay. What else is he afraid of about Aslan doing it? Yeah, he's he's afraid it's gonna hurt, right? He doesn't want to have to deal with that. He'd rather have it. Both of them would rather do it a easier way or a more simple way. And we often. All of us often have that same desire that we want it to be without effort, without pain, without humiliation, without any cost to us. We don't want to surrender in the end. And just because you do surrender in the end to God doesn't mean um, that you won't resist that again. And even though... Eustace went through this amazing change, the most, besides Edmund, even more so, I would say, his is the most dramatic change of anybody. But Eustace, it doesn't make him perfect. You'll see, uh, you already have seen, that Eustace has made plenty of mistakes again already, and he does in the book that follows this, he makes some mistakes, though not as many. And we're going to see, you can see that in your own lives if you if you're, look at them critically and your own actions that we tend to do the same things again. But um, hopefully 
over time though we learn from that and we gradually get better and better at just surrendering instead of fighting back and pushing against it for so long um so we do see this trouble again of trying to resist what God's plan is, what his intention is for us. And we see this with Harfang, which is where we left off last, which <clears throat> what was what is Harfang? Specifically, it's um, a house or a castle that the supposedly gentle giants live in. And how did they find out about this castle? They were told by the, the witch. Yes, although she uh, gave a different name. Uh, yeah, the lady of the green kirtle, which a kirtle is a type of dress. Um, it's like a medieval uh, dress. Um, and she, why does she tell them to go there? Right, right. And we might think at first thought, well, that's not, that's not the most tempting thing in the world, just a warm bed and a warm bath. Until, if you've experienced it, have, remembering the last time that you have been out camping or what, that type of outdoor experience where you have not bathed in days maybe even weeks if you've gone that long and you've slept on the hard ground and it's been cold and damp and really there's nothing you'd rather have than a hot meal to be able to get warm and get in and out of the weather it is extremely tempting of a thing now who isn't buying it though? This whole idea that the giants are going to will take care of them and give them warm food and baths and Puddleglum. Why is he not buying it? Yes, okay. He, uh, part of it is, right, he's, it's part of his personality to be aware and to be watching and to be uh, skeptical, think of all the possible outcomes of things. But another thing is that he has grown that personality that he has through experience. And I don't even mean experience with Aslan because he's never met Aslan before. 
He's just a regular kind of guy. Um, really nothing special about him that we know. We actually don't know anything about him before or after the silver chair. He is one of the characters that never shows up again. Um, he may be... He may be mentioned once in a, um, being in Aslan's country at the end of the world. And that's about it. So as far as in Narnia, he's uh, not a whole lot about him. Yes. Yes. Correct. He doesn't show up. Oh, he does show up in The Horse and the Boy and his boy. He's only in it for like a, like a paragraph. So, <laughs> um, but he is, he is somebody who, he has a lot of common sense. He has learned well from living. And the thing is though, that he is pretty much outvoted in the end about whether or not they should take the Lady of the Green Kirtle's advice. Now, he could have pushed his ideas on them and said, no, 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 we're not going to go there. I'm putting my foot down. But why do you think he doesn't do that? Why, why wouldn't he do that? Okay, um, it's definitely out of his character, right? It would be out of character for him to, like you said, force his will on them. We haven't seen him do it, do that with anybody or especially them yet, right? Um, let's think about the book as a whole. I think you talked about this maybe last week, even if you weren't here. Um, but we talked about how, what did, who, what is the main focus of the entire book? As a story, like just as, as a story. yeah. Right. Prince Rillian. Right. Okay. Who is supposed to do that? Right. How did they get that task? Aslan gave it to them. Okay. Okay. So, if Puddleglum is um, a follower of Aslan and that he does the right thing and he... From this, you can gather that he's a very meek person, a humble person, obviously very wise, has a lot of knowledge. In that case, why would he not take charge of this task? Because uh, Joe and Eustace know, have met Aslan and he hasn't. 
Um, you're on the right track. It is, it is more of the fact, I would inverse that, that Aslan has given the task to Jill and Eustace. He did not give it to Puddleglum. And uh, Puddleglum, being the good Narnian that he is, he is there to serve them in their quest. He's going to do everything he can to help them, but this is not his task directly. Instead, it's something ordained by Aslan that these two children are in charge, and he's going to do whatever he can to help them. Now, part of that is that he is going to submit to whatever their decision is in the end. And that, as he should, it's the correct thing that he should do. And we see that with... Um, Um, and think of even like Jesus' apostles. Jesus had a mission, and they had plenty of other ideas of what that mission was going to look like. They thought that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom, and in the, in the end, they had they submitted to what. He, what the real mission was that they didn't understand. Um, or we see that with other people in the Bible where David has advisors that work with him, the good ones that submit themselves to him, give him advice, but in the end they allow him to do what he will. Um, so now they've ignored Puddleglum and what... In the end, and we've already touched on this, but makes them finally choose to go to Harfang instead of focus on the mission. Um, they're told that once they rest, yeah, okay. What's that going to make their journey and like? Is it how's it going to affect the um I guess I would say I don't know how else to pose it to you, but it essentially they're saying that they're choosing the easy way. They're choosing it because this is going to make their journey easier. And the other thing along with that is that the witch has put this little thing on there, this little caveat, important little side note, what do they need to make sure that they do if they want to get to Harfang and get in? Get there before the gates close. Right. Get there. She has made it seem like... This when that this is their only chance. That if we don't we do this or we're going to die, and these are two powerful um, ideas that Satan uses as a weapon for us. One is to take the easy choice, do whatever's easiest, and this is it. This is our only chance. We have to do it now. I. It's, it could be the, 
well, if I don't take this vacation now, I'll never be able to do it. Or if I don't buy this car right now, I'll never find my dream car again. Or if I don't tell that person that they're doing something wrong, I'll never get the right chance to do it again. There, there are tons of things where that is an opportunity. And the tricky thing about it is, are there times where you only get one opportunity? There are, right. And that's the hard thing, but that's where they could have weighed this and said, well, we also just really want to sleep in a warm bed tonight. You know, you can start stacking up the things. They could then start saying, well, Puddle Glum didn't get a good feeling about that person. And why we have no reason to trust them. If they had started to put those things together, they might have made a different choice. Um, now, there's, <clears throat> well, we'll get to that in a minute. There's one other reason of how they could have avoided this stumbling block, the most important one. So they get to Harfang. And it seems great, right? They get let in. There's a roaring fire right when they get in. It's instantly warm. The king and queen greet them, give them all the comforts that they've been longing for. And they're so friendly. They truly are the gentle giants. But there seems to be an undercurrent to everything as they go through. As they are there, as they stay a little longer, things there seems to be something amiss. Yet, they are very slow to see any danger. Even Puddleglum succumbs to Harfang. What's he do? He drinks the stuff and drinks the water. Yes. He drinks... Now, this... A... a on out back to our allegorical level he drinks the world's water what do you think I mean by that he does what the, he does what Okay, you're close. Not quite. Um, let's compare it to Aslan's water that he gives Jill. What happens when Jill drinks Aslan's water? She's not thirsty anymore. Right. She, she has just a little bit and is completely satisfied. What is gone from her mind? The fear of Aslan. Yep. All of her fears are gone and because her plan was as soon as she drank enough water, she was just going to run away from Aslan. And she said, I felt no need to do that after I drank. All that was abated. 
Um, and also, after she drinks the water, what does she get from Aslan besides the mission? It's really important to their whole goal. Is it the four signs that they need to follow? Yeah, she gets the four signs. And what are those signs in a spiritual sense? Or for us. I think we did a lesson about, or we had a verse that's like, read the Bible day and night so you don't forget it. Yes. Aslan told her that she has to repeat the signs day and night or yep. else she'll forget them. Yep. So is it, what, is it the Bible? She gets, yes, that's correct as to what they represent, but, um, it's also what we find in the Bible is truth and wisdom, something that you can rely on. It's um, it what yes. What happens to Puddle Glum when he drinks the drink that's offered to him? Yes, and I don't, you're correct, he does get drunk, but it's not to focus on the drunk aspect, it's what happens to you when you're inebriated. You make poor decisions, you're not aware of what's going on, you're, you lose wisdom, you just make poor choices, because alcohol is literally inhibiting, inhibiting your brain's ability to operate. There's no amount of overcoming it until you've allowed it to pass. Now, let's go. I have a couple verses to read. These are all from Peter. We're going to be in First Peter. Uh, towards the end of the New Testament. And we're going to do First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We've got three verses to look at. We'll start with that one. And there's going to be a theme here. Thirteen. Yep. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope it to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, then we're going to turn in, still in First Peter, but to Chapter 4, verse 7. Um, I can read that one. But at the end of all things, oh, sorry, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And then verse 5, or sorry, chapter 5, verse 8, if you could read that one. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the, de the devil, is a roaring lion. Walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Okay. So, seems to be an important thing for to Peter to be sober. Now, do you think he's talking about being drunk? Or? No. No. Uh, sober is used a lot as like, be vigilant and ready for stuff to happen. Right. 
to have your wits about you, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Precisely. So, Peter uses this, which is interesting, because he was one of the closest to Jesus and what happened to him. He uh, went against him after Jesus was on the cross. Right. He denied him. Right. And what did Jesus tell him? Well, Jesus told him that was going to happen, right? And he told him that the devil was looking to do what to him? He said that, he was, that, that Satan was looking to sift him like wheat. That he was, because wheat, you have to crush the kernel to get the chaff off of it, so you beat it. And he was saying, Satan is looking to beat you into a pulp, basically. And that's what Satan did do. He used, he used all that he could against Peter. And when did Satan catch Peter unawares? Because he totally even forgot that Jesus said that, right? He did it even though he, Jesus predicted what he was going to do. Yeah. And people were telling people said that he was one of Jesus' followers. Right. And do you know what time I, well yeah, you should know. What time of like day or night or whatever did it happen? When Peter was told oh, in the morning because roosters were crowing. Yeah, and what time do roosters start crowing? Like really early, like right when the sun comes up. Sometimes before because they're kind of dumb, right? Right. And so, and this is, Peter has not been sleeping. He's been all, up all night. He's tired, meaning that his brain isn't working good, right? Anytime you have less sleep, your brain does not function properly. So... When, what's going on with Jill and Eustace when they are like, they, when they say, let's, let's just go and go to Harfang. We're just going to go. They hadn't slept in the, they hadn't slept well for a really long time. Yep. And what was the situation around them at the moment? No, before they, when they decide, let's just get to Harfang. Okay. They didn't, they were just sleeping on the ground. They didn't really. They were, but they were in the middle of a snowstorm, right? Yeah. And they're, and they're kind of lost. They're like, they're trying to find an easier way. And they, um, and they're really, they're angry with each other. So we have where they made a poor choice. And Puddleglum, he, this is a, a unusual slip up for him. It's his only 
time where he slips up. Because everybody has a weakness, and apparently something good and hot to drink is Puddle Glum's weakness. I don't know. Or, ju- or whatever it might have been. The whole time. Right, right. Another thing that we're going to get to in a second here is that he had just been, when they were in, as we know now, stuck in the letters, the giant letters, they had been ignoring everything he was trying to say. They didn't listen to him at all. So he's probably not feeling too good about himself right now either. He's in a he's at a in at a weaker state where he succumbs to this. Um, so now that they're at Harfang, they get in their rooms. What happens that night? Um, While they're asleep, it was kind of a weird part of the movie. Jill has a dream. That night. She has uh, a movie with the spirit or whatever came out of her body. Mm-hmm. She was talking to Aslan. She was really scared because she had got all the signs. Yes. And she wanted Aslan to forgive her. Yes. Okay. So, before we talk about the dream, do you think that actually that Aslan actually came to her? Or was it a a dream used by Aslan? Well, I think it was a dream used by Aslan to help her remember that she needs to follow the signs. Okay. Could it could he have used either one? Either of the could he either have gone in person or just used the dream? Yeah. Okay. I would say it really, it's not even worth analyzing that much because it doesn't matter. Because both things are where he's in control of it, right? And I just say that to point out that there are people who put too much emphasis on dreams and there are people who, and what's more common is to say that dreams don't matter at all, right? Especially now, like, people will just be like, oh, it's just your brain figuring out stuff at night, and it's just a bunch of chemicals in your brain. And I will say that both of those things can be true. And that they will come, it says in... Well, I'm not going to remember where it says it, but it says in the New Testament in the Bible about the end times that the that young men will have visions and old men will dream dreams. That God is going to speak to them in that way. So it's something to look out for. He has done it many times in the past. We're all familiar with Daniel and Joseph and even Jacob who has a vision. And... 
And Isaiah, yep, lots of these people. And it's a way that God uses to talk to us. So um, in this dream, as you said, she is asked to say the signs. And to her horror, she cannot recite them to Aslan. And so he shows her then the sign that she missed. What is that sign? Right. At, and that's supposed to be at the... Um, yes. Which they did. And <clears throat> the interesting thing is that Jill stopped saying the signs many days and nights ago. And they were not in her daily thinking anymore, not in the front of her mind. I don't know about you, but... For me, if I have an appointment, if I have something that I need to do on a day, I have to write it down. I have to put it on a calendar or something. Otherwise, I will forget it. And if it's not in the forefront of my mind, and sometimes I don't even look at it that day. I already know it. But it's because I keep looking at it every day and say, oh, yeah, that's right. I need to do that or I need to remember that. And we're the same, that's the same thing with the Bible. You can, you could read the whole Bible. You could even memorize parts of it. But if then you don't think about it, you don't use it, you're not in it for a few months, a year. I mean, if you go many, many years without reading certain parts of the Bible, you'll forget things about it. You'll forget aspects. And then... When you come across similar situations in your life, you're not going to recall the wisdom and the, the directions, the instructions that God has there for us. So this is what happened to Jill. So was it Jill's fault that they missed the sign? Yep. So good, because that was my next thing, is that you, the, to say that Eustace never put forth any effort to learn the signs. I will still say it's entirely Jill's fault. I'll say it's also Eustace's fault. The Really the one who it's not a whole lot of fault on, although he puts fault on himself, he says later, I should have done better was Puddleglum tries about three times to point out that they might be missing the forest for the trees. That they're down there in the middle of it, quite literally. They're, they're in the letters, and none of them want to listen. And uh, Puddleglum even mentions a few times about the signs, and Jill says, bother the signs. And then later, when he tries to mention it one last time, they tell him, oh, shut up. Let's just get to Harfang. So they were distracted, stressed, tired, hungry. Maybe it's Levi's famous halt. Do you remember that? So 
He says, anytime you are one of these three things, these each stand for something, that you need to halt and take a minute and think about it and maybe fix one of the things. So if you are hungry, if you are angry, lonely, or tired, you don't make good decisions. You act on emotion or your brain's not functioning right. Any of those things you need, and they've got all these things going on with them, right? They are hungry for sure. They're lonely because they're all fighting with each other. They are angry at each other because they're fighting with each other. They're angry at the situation and they're all tired. Now, do you remember, I don't know if you were here, but talking in the beginning, the second time we looked at um, Narnia here for this book, that there were three ways of interacting with God's plan. And we looked at a verse, and we said that you either need to be, well, you should be doing all three of these at the same time, but... Sometimes each one is more important. You either need to be looking for God's plan, waiting for God's plan, or acting on it. And um, I'm going to turn quick to Hebrews. After all the T's, chapter 12. And we read one of these verses when we were talking about being of a one group working together as Christians, as a church towards a goal, and that division is going to be an enemy of God's plan and of it um, being acted on. We're going to read in Hebrews 12, we're going to read 13 through 16, and we can go back and forth. Start with 13. And make straight paths for your feet, thus that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fill of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring, springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Oh no, that's good. 16 is the last one. So, does that ring true for this party? This group of three? Sounds like there's bitterness springing up. Not a lot of peace between them at this point, right? Um, and then what about that verse 16, the last part of that? Uh, as Esau, for who, for who, for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. He gave up uh, everything because he wanted... What about it was... Um, he had stew. It was for stew.
that's for the blessing. But the birthright is where he was out hunting all day and was starving and tired and came back and said to Jacob, give me some of that stew or else I'll die. And Jacob said, well, only if you give me your birthright, you can have it for, the, for a pot of stew. And Esau said, whatever, you can have it. I want what I want right now. So pretty similar to their situation, right? They just want what they want right there in the moment. And they're about, um, and really, they are about to lose their lives if they don't wake up, right? And they are sent to sobering moments. What are the two sobering moments that wake them up to realize the danger that they're in? Okay, that's good. Yeah. So uh, there would be three then. Um, but really, they're still like not aware of how dangerous the castle is, even after the dream. They've realized their mistake in missing the sign. But the first is they eat a talking beast, right? That's their first wake-up call that, hey, things are not good here. You need to get out. The second one is discovering that they're next. Yeah, that this is not a safe place. So they barely escape with their lives and that they are sure that they've ruined the plan of Aslan that he has, that they're trying to follow. Now, as you know, since we've finished the movie, they have not ruined the plan, although it could have been different. It actually might have been easier, although it didn't seem like it was easy Certainly going to Harfang did not make things easier, right? It slowed them down. It deterred them. Yeah, they almost died. But we'll see um, that now that they get back on the right path, they are going to stick to the signs, that they are going to work together better as a group. And that when they work together with peace with one another, that you'll see them help one another more, that they are going to be successful and see that plan to the end. And that's what we have for this week. So next week we'll continue on and we'll see them go underground. <laughs>